Thanks, Suzanne, for leading our prayers this morning. Good morning. It's, uh, it's good to be here. I'd like to add my welcome to Steve's welcome at the start of the service. Um, my name's Tom. I'm the minister here at Norwich Central. If you've not met me before, then please do come and say hello after the service. It's always such an encouragement to, to meet new people. And as Suzanne's just, just said, today is Pentecost Sunday. So this weekend is not just a celebration because of the Jubilee and everything that's good about that, but it's also a celebration that is specific to the church, specific to the Christian faith. It's a celebration of the fact that when Jesus rose and appeared to his disciples and then appeared to many, many others and then eventually ascended into heaven, that wasn't the end. In fact, in a way, that was, that was the beginning. That was the beginning of the last chapter that we are in now, today. It was the time when Jesus' Holy Spirit that he'd promised was poured out on his disciples. And as they gathered in, in Jerusalem, the Bible describes flames burning above their heads. They began talking in languages that they'd never spoken before, each one able to communicate with one of the many different languages that people, pilgrims, had brought into the city at that time to celebrate um, a feast. They were accused of being drunk, but they weren't. By rights, they should have been in a state of mourning. If the resurrection is a load of old tosh, as many people say, then they should have been in a state of mourning, having just lost the man in whom they have placed everything, their trust, their love, their lives. But instead, rather than being in mourning, we see them preaching, we see Peter preaching, and we're told that on that day, more than 3,000 people heard the good news that Jesus is the risen son of the living God, and they responded by following his instruction to be baptized. So Pentecost is a day of celebration. This is a, this is a celebration, but of course, all of that, all of that is, is, is great, but we need, first of all, to make sure that the person upon whom it all depends, Jesus, was who he said he was. And so today, we are carrying on from last week where we began looking at Jesus, looking at the evidence for Jesus. And you'll remember, last week we began by looking at other historical figures, Churchill, Cromwell, Caesar, and challenging ourselves, why do we believe that those people existed? What evidence... What evidence do we require in order to be satisfied that those people actually existed? And for Churchill, we spoke about the fact that we have pictures, we have eyewitness accounts, we had one or two people here in a congregation who, who were eyewitnesses, who testified that they'd seen Churchill. Um, Terry had actually been to his funeral. And so it was accepted that Churchill, we can rely on the fact that Churchill existed. There's enough evidence. And then we looked at Cromwell, and there are portraits of Cromwell. There are records of speeches that he gave. There are um, people who have studied his, his life. And we can, we can accept and trust that Oliver Cromwell was a true historical figure. And then we looked at Caesar. And we had to accept that actually for Caesar, we haven't got an awful lot of evidence. The most reliable evidence that we have is based on an account written um, long after he died, and the earliest copy we've got of that was actually a thousand years, written a thousand years after the first copy. There is a, a long, long, long time 
um, that pass, time for a text to be exaggerated or manipulated or altered and edited, chopped and changed. And then we looked at the evidence for Jesus, and we have to come to accept that if we're willing to accept based upon the evidence available that Julius Caesar was a real historical figure, then there is a lot more evidence, reliable evidence, for Jesus than there is for Julius Caesar. Therefore, it stands to reason that we have to accept, whether we like it or not, that if we're willing to trust the evidence for Caesar, it's only right that we accept and trust the evidence for Jesus. But of course, that's only half the story. That establishes that Jesus was a true living figure in history, that he's not just a a mythical figure that's been invented. But Jesus claimed to be fully man, but he also claimed to be fully God. And so today, we're going to just consider his claim to be the Son of God. Now, there are many, many different words that you might associate with Jesus. It's just a a word map up there containing different words that might spring to mind. But you see, Jesus' teachings... Jesus' teachings are still used today. Jesus' teaching, whether we like it or not, is still used to form the, the bedrock of our society. Our legal system is based upon the teachings that we find in Scripture. Jesus was revolutionary in his teaching, and his teachings are still relevant today because they're infallible. If we look at just a couple of these teachings... Matthew 5.38, Jesus says, You've heard heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. So Jesus says, okay, so so historically, the law that you've lived by, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. In other words, someone, someone punches you, knocks out your tooth, you can do the same to them. Someone steals something from you, you've got a right to take from them. It's a a legal system based on getting even with someone. And to be honest, an awful lot of people in the world would like that still to be the case. Revenge is sweet. Jesus says, But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So Jesus says, someone slaps you on the cheek, offer the other one. Now for years, I thought this was actually a bit pathetic, you know, you, you just have to stand there and take what, what's ever thrown, whatever's thrown at you. It's a weak, soft approach. And I thought, no, no, that's, that's, that's no way to live life. That's no way to live life at all. All that's going to do is lead to people taking advantage of you, seeing you as a soft touch. You'll be a pushover. That's no way to live life. And indeed, it's not. I still stand by that. But Jesus stands by that as well, and that's not the point that he was making. You see, I'd misunderstood entirely what Jesus was getting at. 
Actually, what Jesus says is, if you're struck on one cheek, don't whimper, don't cower, don't back away and be intimidated. You stand there and you say, yeah, go on in, do that one. Do that one. Show whoever it is that's striking you that you're not going to be cowed by them, that you're not going to be scared of them, that you're going to stand there, you're going to stand up for what you believe, you're going to stand for who you are. This is a, this is a statement of strength. This is not someone who is meek and cowardly. If someone forces you to go a mile, there was a, rule, there was a law at this time that the Romans had brought that if a Roman soldier said to a, um, a, a, a peasant that they wanted equipment carried, a shield carried, or, or provisions, they could, they could ask them to carry it for one mile. That was, that was an accepted... That was accepted. If a soldier asks you to carry something for a mile, you, you have to do it. Jesus says, yeah, carry it for a mile, but then make a point. Carry it for two. Go over the top. You see, by doing this, it completely turns on its head the idea of, of seeking revenge, of wanting to get even. Instead, it shows an attitude. It shows an attitude that whatever you ask me to do, I'll do, I'll do more, because... My values, my values are focused on heaven. They're not focused on, oh, I've got to walk, and then I've got to come back, and he's telling us, really? No, it's not. We're not focusing on, on the earthly values. You, you need that carried? Yeah, you, you, you're a soldier, you're, you're, you know, you're big and tough and everything, but you can't carry it? Yeah, let, let me take it for you, don't worry. Tell you what, no, a mile, oh, no, no, I'll take it two miles for you. In Hebrews, it, sorry, in, in Romans rather, it says that having this attitude is like, like pouring burning coals on the heads of your enemies. You're so annoyingly nice. So often Christians are called do-gooders. You think, well, I, know, I used to think, oh yeah, blooming do-gooders. What's so bad about doing good? There's nothing bad about doing good. Jesus' teachings encourage us to do good, to be good people to set a good example and to show people that, that intimidation, that threat, that, that forcing people to do things, it's not going to break the spirit of the Christian people. It's not going to break the spirit of those who follow Jesus. And Jesus himself set that example so, so, so strongly, so well, so certainly, as he hung on the cross. But more of that later. Jesus said, you've heard it said that, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So in Jesus' eyes, he says, I know it was, it was written, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Seek revenge, get even. But that changes. That stops with me. And from now on, you love your enemies. You pray for those who persecute you. 
From now on, the spirit of love and grace must overcome the spirit of resentment and revenge and hatred and conflict that existed previously. Jesus brought to the world a love so strong that it can defeat the power of evil. And that's not just a a flippant Christian churchy statement. That is a human truth. You see, if someone does wrong to me, in fact, this morning, oh, this morning, I walked here. I know, I know. Um, So Joe and Tim could have the car and get here nice and early rather than rushing in at um, uh, 10, 14 and 59 seconds. Not that I was counting. Um, So I walked here. And um, on my walk here, obviously it had been raining overnight, and uh, thankfully it wasn't raining while I was walking, um, and I was going through, through the sermon in my mind, and I was in a bit of a daydream, and I was walking past this puddle, and there was a car came towards me, and it went through, and I got, from there downwards, I got soaked. And a bit of the old me, it came out. I stood there, and I turned, oh, you... And then I stopped. And I'm glad I stopped. I'm glad I stopped. It's not really the, you know, the way to, to, to walk to church on a Sunday morning with um, you know, certain thoughts and things. And I, I just stopped and I thought, I've got to pray for that person. I've got to pray for them. And so I did. Thanks, Lord, for that. Wally, it's just driven past and soaked me. But what I always find is that as I pray, I kind of, as I, before I condemn somebody else, I'm reminded of all my own iniquities, all my own faults. And suddenly, that feeling of annoyance, you look down and you think, I've got wet legs. There's people in the world who are starving. There's people in the world who were alive when I left home and will be dead when I arrive at church simply because I haven't got clean water. So really, I'm out. No, I'm not. So what? Wet legs. Who cares? But you see, what I could have done was got really annoyed. And I could have stood there and shouted obscenities at the car as it drove away. And I could have festered and, and, and smouldered as I walked here. And I could have told dozens, <laughs> well I am now, but I could have told dozens of people as I walked in and had a moan about everything that had happened and how awful things are. And then immediately that would have passed on my negative feeling, my anger. It would have passed it on to other people. Oh, some, I can't believe, how minister, did you hear what happened to him? It would have passed it on and on and on and that, that's not good. That's not good because the the negative feeling, these sinful emotions, the anger and the frustration, the annoyance, it passes on. It's like fire. It spreads and it spreads and it spreads. But as soon as you stop and you pray for those people and you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you, it's like walking up to that fire and just tipping water on it. And it's gone. And that's what Jesus wants us to do. And that is the power of the gospel. That is why the gospel message is good news. Because we have that water, that living water, that we can pour onto the fire before it spreads. The fire that Satan would love to see engulfing the world. But Jesus calls us to extinguish it every time we come into contact with it. So Jesus' teachings still today They're infallible 
because they're based on truth, they're based on goodness, and they're based on the right way to live life. Jesus' teachings still form the basis of our society, the basis of our legal system. Jesus' teachings are evidence that he was the Son of God, because only the Son of God could give such divine teaching. The next body of evidence that we look at is Jesus' works. We know that Jesus performed many, many miraculous acts. He turned water into wine when he was invited to a wedding. He fed 5,000 people from one boy's packed lunch. He calmed a storm that was threatening to engulf the boat in which him and his disciples were sailing. He walked across water. None of these things have ever been done since because none of them can be explained away. People have tried to come up with with smart explanations of how these things can happen, but it cannot be done. In John chapter 10, we see Jesus challenging, well, being challenged and challenging the Pharisees who accused him of blasphemy. They saw his works. They were angered by his works because they knew that through his works, he was claiming to be the Son of God. The Jews picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any of those, replied the Jews, but for blaspheming, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I've said to you, I've said that you are gods, with a small g. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I've said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father." Jesus is accused of blasphemy and he points, to, he points to the scriptures where all who follow God, we are called sons of God. And he says, so I'm a son of God, yeah. But actually look at the miracles that are performed. If you don't believe me, a mere man, then look beyond and see the works. Do you not believe they come from the Father? If you look at, look at my works... Don't judge me on who I claim to be. Judge me on what I've done and what I'm doing and what I will do. And then you will see that the Father is in me and I in the Father. But again, they tried to seize him and Jesus had to escape. So when Jesus was about to be stoned to death, he challenges. He says, look at my works. And he says today, look at my works. There have been so many people that have taken taken various miracles and tried to explain them away. I was watching a 
a documentary some time ago, and it was, it was talking about, um, not one of Jesus' miracles, but it was talking about the crossing of the Egyptians um, from Egypt. And meteorologists have apparently agreed that once in every few hundred years, there is a freak weather occurrence in that region where two um, wind systems, air systems, um, collide, and you get currents of air strong enough to push the waters of a river back for a short period. And they've said, yeah, we, we, we believe this can happen. And therefore, we've, we've, um, we've kind of explained away one of the so-called biblical miracles but surely, 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 the miracle is in the fact that this freak occurrence that happens just once every few hundred years just happened to take place at the moment when Moses prayed for God, to God that that would happen, and when the Egyptian army were approaching, and when thousands of Israelites were desperately trying to cross the river. Surely that's a bit of a miracle. So the Christian response to that is to say, yeah, God does reveal to us that these things can happen. These things that people say, no, it's fairy stories, it's rubbish, it's nonsense. When we really look into it, actually God's created a world in which these things can happen. And then he's created the timing. And he's brought all these things together so that in exactly the right moment in time, everything happens. And God's plan can be enacted. The more that people try to challenge and disprove the stories of the Bible, the more evidence that is revealed to us. And surely the strongest piece of evidence in Jesus' works were that those words, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus hung on that cross out of love. Out of love for you and for me. Love for the people who persecuted him. Love for his enemies. It was an act of, of practicing what he'd preached, of doing what he'd told us to do. And therefore, he set us an example to follow. Not just teachings to obey, but an example to follow. The next Next piece of evidence, if you like, is that Jesus had an exemplary character. He set us the perfect example in the way that he lived his life. He lived a life without sin. None of us here today can claim to have lived a life without sin. None of us. No one who has ever lived with the exception of Jesus can make that claim. Jesus lived... Such a life. Now, of course, there's a huge chunk of Jesus' life that we don't know anything about. His, his childhood, we have, we have his birth narrative, and then we have a brief glimpse when he was a few years old, and then we see him when he was 12. And then we don't see anything more of him until he was in his late 20s, possibly 30, when his ministry began. But what we do know is that the Gospels were widely available. Thousands of copies were in existence within one generation of Jesus dying, rising, and ascending. 
And so eyewitnesses who had seen these things, who knew Jesus, people who had lived with him, who possibly had worked with him, who maybe had had eaten with him, had spent time with him, maybe even grown up with him, people whose names and, and existences have been lost to history, they would have had the opportunity to say, hang on a second, my mate Jesus, you're joking, son of God, no. But nobody did. It would have been very easy to snuff this out early on, but nobody did. Nobody did. And instead, the example of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the works of Jesus, and the character of Jesus made such an impression upon the world that today, literally billions of people across the world accept his claim to be the Son of God. The character of Jesus was so strong that on the cross, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, verse 34, we, we see the cry of the cross after the flogging, the injustice of the, 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 the trial, after the, the beatings, the, the mockery, everything that he'd gone through. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. Jesus didn't say, Father, wipe them out. Father, curse them and every generation of their families to come. Father, send an army to take over this place, get me off here. No, that would have been the reaction of someone who was fully man and nothing more. That was the reaction of someone who wanted an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But instead, Jesus calls out to God and prays for those who persecute him. He loves his enemies because he knows that even his enemies, even those who have put him on the cross, need the forgiveness of the Father. In the lead up to Easter, we spent a couple of weeks looking at prophecy, didn't we? And in that series, we spoke about the number of prophecies that, 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 are, that we can find in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Over 300 prophecies we can find in the Old Testament about Jesus. Over 300. On the day that Jesus died, 29 major prophecies were fulfilled. Now, yes, you can look at that and say, well, you know, if I want to be the son of God, I should have to look back and read the prophecies and then make sure I live a life that fulfills them. It can't be that difficult. But how can you control where you're born? You can't. How can you control what the constellations are doing when you're born? You can't. And surely, if you are a fraud, do you really go through the crucifixion? I mean, I know... I'm all for commitment to the cause and everything, but surely if this is just a historical fraud, no one in their right mind would go through the agony of the crucifixion. Which brings us to the C.S. Lewis quote that we had last week, which gave us the option, the three options that, that Lewis presents to us, that Jesus was either evil 
the devil of hell. But surely that can't be right. Because as we said today, Jesus didn't preach a message of revenge, a message of evil, a message of condemnation, a message of conflict, a message of selfishness. Jesus didn't bring anything evil into the world. Our society, our legal system, based upon the teachings of Jesus, is not a society that seeks to destroy, that seeks to kill, that seeks to punish viciously. It's a system that seeks to rehabilitate, that seeks to, yes, administer justice, but also to give people a chance in life. Because Jesus was not evil. And so the next option that Lewis gave us was that he was psychologically unhinged. He was unstable. Well, that would explain someone going to the cross and going through everything that he went through when he could have simply renounced his claim. But that doesn't work when we look at his teachings, when we look at his works, when we look at his healings. This is a man who, who healed someone who had been, been paralyzed for 38 years. This is a man who went to a tomb and raised Lazarus, his friend, from the dead. He couldn't have done all the things that he did. His teachings are too consistently good, consistently logical. If this is the teaching of a madman, then then our very society is based upon insanity. <laughs> One or two of you might go along with that sometimes, but, but no. It doesn't stand to reason that Jesus was psychologically unbalanced. Instead, it stands to reason that Jesus was who he claimed to be. See, on the, the day of the resurrection, Jesus left the tomb. He appeared to two ladies in the, tomb, in the garden, outside the tomb. Then he appeared to his disciples. And immediately rumors started spreading. There were rumors that he wasn't actually dead, that he was taken down from the cross and he was still alive and then he was revived and that, that explains how the so-called resurrection happened. But we're told in the gospel that after the crown of thorns, after the, the flogging, which by the way, some people died of the flogging when strips of leather dipped in lead were, were whipped across someone's back, it tears lumps of flesh from the body. Sometimes organs and the spine itself were exposed and people died under a flogging. So don't think this was just a little, you know, you know, it's like a, when I was at school and you used to get the wet towel and it wasn't, it wasn't that. Well, that did tang a bit. This was seriously a threat to life. But after the flogging and after the crown of thorns and after the carrying of the cross and after the nails through the hands and through the feet, 
And after hanging on the cross for six hours, which it was designed so that I think you effectively drowned in your own fluid because you couldn't hold yourself up, and as you, as you sagged, your lungs, your lungs filled with, with, with fluid. Um, after six hours of that, a sword was put into the side of Jesus, stabbed into the side of him, and then withdrawn. And the gospel says that what flowed out was blood and water. I'm no medical man, but I have it on good account that when a body has been dead for some time and the, blood, the, the heart has stopped circulating blood around the body, the red blood cells and other blood cells sink to the bottom and the serum, the clear fluid, the plasma, is left the two separate. And so when blood and water flow out, it is serum and clot, blood clot. And this is taken as evidence that Jesus was dead. His heart had stopped beating long enough ago for the two parts of the blood to have separated. So Jesus was dead on the cross. And then, of course, there were questions raised about, well, the body, where's the body? He hasn't risen again. The disciples have stolen it. That doesn't stand to reason. The disciples wouldn't have stolen the body and kept this myth going. They would have seen that Jesus had been a fraud all along. He wasn't the son of God. Look, there's his body. He's dead. We were wrong. They would have fled Jerusalem. They certainly wouldn't have gone and stood up and preached message of a risen Christ in the center of Jerusalem, knowing that they were immediately going to be putting a target on their back. They certainly wouldn't have gone out into the world as, as they did to all different areas, and the large majority of them were martyred for their faith. They were, they were killed for their faith. They wouldn't have gone through that, knowing full well that they'd hidden the body and that the whole thing was a fallacy. Jesus appeared 11 different times over six weeks to his disciples and to other people. More than 500 people bore witness to the risen Christ. He ate with them. He cooked breakfast for his disciples. He, he asked for food. He felt hungry. This wasn't an apparition. This wasn't a hallucination. This was a person who felt the need to eat. He ate grilled fish with his disciples. He spoke to his disciples and to others. The evidence for the resurrection is worth looking into. And once you've looked into it, you'll realize that it is more than worth believing. And then finally, on the day of Pentecost, as I said earlier, over 3,000 people were baptized when they heard the good news because so many of them had seen the risen Christ and heard about the risen Christ from people that they trusted and they were prepared to put their faith into the risen Christ. And it, the Christian faith became such a threat that eventually Stephen was stoned to death in the middle of Jerusalem. The others scattered, and so began the spread of the church that continues today, the, the taking of the gospel to all corners of the earth, making disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
The transformational effect of the good news of the gospel is incredible. Just yesterday, um, we had some friends staying with us and we went to a uh, Methodist church in Sprouston. They had a little fake going on. It was really good. And um, we, we, we got there and had a big bouncy castle thing and kids were launching themselves down it at a rate of knots and there was other things going on and there was a massive queue for the barbecue. And you know what it's like? You walk into these things thinking, well, I'm not going to spend any money. I'm just going to look around. And then you smell the barbecue. And you think, oh, man, that's good. And then you see someone walking past with a massive quarter pound. You think, oh, I know it's not lunchtime, but, you know. So anyway, we started queuing up, and um, I said to Joe, how much is a burger? And she said, it's, it's, all, it's all free. They're doing it all free, it's just donations. And we kind of said, oh, that's nice, you know, good for a church to do that. Because we're used to church. Church has been a big part of our lives for a long, long time. But for the friends we were with, they were, it's free? What, what, what's the catch? No, no, it's a church. There isn't one. And then we went inside and got a, a, a cup of tea and um, one, of, one of our friends said to me, she said, I feel really uncomfortable because I went and got a cup of tea and there was this lady, she, she, was, she was so old and she had shaking hands and, and she, she, couldn't, she couldn't hear, I had to speak up, but, but she was serving. And look, she's on her feet, she's serving people. I should be serving her. That's the transformational effect of Jesus on people. That lady, bless her heart, despite her frailties, despite the fact that she was probably she should have been the one sitting down receiving the cup of tea, the effect of the gospel on her was that she wanted to serve. She wanted to be Jesus to the people that were coming into her church. And that is such a good example. It is such a good witness. It is such a good model of Jesus. The transformational effect of the Holy Spirit is perhaps the biggest body of evidence for Jesus that we can find. But people can only see that if they're willing to accept all the other evidence and take that step. And I say step, it's not a leap of faith. A leap of faith you'd be mad to take. If someone says your, your, your evidence finishes there and God is there, you need to take a running leap across that chasm and if you don't get there, you're going to fall and plummet and it's all going to be awful. So are you prepared to do that? No, I'm not. But if someone says, well, look, here's this bit of evidence and this brick of evidence and this brick of evidence and this brick of evidence, you get to the point where suddenly that huge chasm has become a very manageable gap. And when we get to that point, that's faith. That gap will never be fully bridged. Because if it is fully bridged, then we're not required to have faith. And the Bible says that we should have faith. We are called to have faith. Jesus said to his disciple Thomas, you have believed because you've seen, but blessed are those who believe though they have not seen. Our faith blesses us. Just by having faith, God blesses us. And when we get to the point of being prepared to take that step of faith, to accept that Jesus was a true historical figure, to accept that Jesus was not just a true historical figure, but was also who he claimed to be, the son of the living God. When we get to that point, that's when the transformation happens. That's when suddenly the, the values of the world are turned on their head. And the values of the kingdom of God are the values that suddenly become important to us. That's when we see us praying for our enemies, praying for those who persecute us. 
That's when we see the desire to serve, to love, to pour out ourselves for others. That's when we see the the fierce determination to stand up for who we are, for what we believe in, to stand up for the values that Jesus teaches. I spoke about Arthur Conan Doyle and the, the process of deduction and how he got to... He, in the Sherlock Holmes stories, Conan Doyle always brings us to that point where Holmes has explored every possible explanation of how the crime could have been committed. And then, once he's discounted every one, whatever he's left with, no matter how ridiculous it may appear to be, that is the answer. It's just a case of explaining it. And so finally, just to finish up before we have our last song and then share communion together, I hope that from last week and this week, we can accept that Jesus wasn't insane. It just doesn't stack up. The evidence doesn't stack up that he was insane. I hope that we can establish that Jesus wasn't evil. There is no evidence that Jesus had anything evil in him or about him. And so finally, C.S. Lewis, he finishes his, his study of the evidence for Jesus by saying, however strange, terrifying, or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that Jesus was and is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for sending your son into the world. We thank you that you did not forsake us. You did not condemn us. You did not abandon us. But instead, you sent your son into this world. Born a lowly birth. Living a life of work dying a torturous death, having performed so many healings, so many miracles, so many teachings, having stood up for what he believed, having, having lived the example as well as spoken it. Father, we thank you for the gospel and for all that it contains and for all that it teaches. And Father, we pray for those who have not yet heard the gospel message, for those who have not yet looked at and studied the life and the works and the teachings of Jesus. Father, we pray that more and more people will look to Jesus, will investigate Jesus, and will find the truth of the gospel for themselves. Father, we thank you that when we look at the evidence for Jesus, we find something so compelling, so compelling that we would be crazy not to recognize that Jesus is the Son of God and that your Holy Spirit is in us and around us and will be today and forevermore. So Father, bless us now as we prepare ourselves to join in the gift of communion, that sacrament that Jesus himself taught us that Jesus himself gave us. Lord, bless us as we worship you. 
Help us to acknowledge our sin. Acknowledge the elements of our character which displease you, the things that we've said or done or thought that we know haven't honoured you. Father, we bring them to, to you now. We lay them out and we pray that you will forgive us as we prepare ourselves to share this communion time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's sing When I Survey the Wondrous Cross.